0: Hello, everybody. This is the episode you've all been waiting for. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with my brother, Dean Klinkenberg, my big brother, Dean. Uh, We have talked for, I don't know, like four or five years about doing some podcasting together. And uh, Dean actually beat me to the punch uh, with his own podcast that he started last year, it's called the Mississippi Valley Traveler, or is that, or is it, it actually has, yeah,
1: that is it, yeah, yeah the Mississippi okay. Valley Traveler podcast.
0: All right, and uh, which I highly recommend you subscribe to. Incredible information about the Mississippi River and uh, and uh, a whole lot of stuff that I think we'll talk about uh, today. Uh, but Dean and I have many overlapping interests it's almost like we're related or something <laughs> you would think <laughs> and uh and so we uh, have had an interest in doing some stuff together um and i thought this was a good time dean was he's in town uh we're not caffeinated enough yet this morning but we'll do our best to get through it.
1: <laughs> maybe the next time we record a podcast we ought to have a beer or two in front of us because that would be a really interesting conversation then so. i think that would be better yeah So.
0: Yeah, we, we are uh, uh, among maybe the only two Klinkenberg men who actually talk a lot. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Other than our father. I think we've, yes. we got it from him, but certainly yeah. not from the Klinkenbergs in general. No. We were a modest, uh, quiet bunch. So, <laughs> <laughs>
0: No kidding. Uh, Dean also does all the family history. So he, there, he has that interest, which maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. But I really want to talk about um, – uh, the overlapping interests that we've had over the years. And Dean, Dean has had a real focus, even though his uh, professional background is psychology, he's had a real interest in uh, uh, river, the Mississippi River and uh, the towns up and down the river. And then uh, because he knows me, we talk about things related to cities and towns and development all the time. And he actually has a piece that he's going to be writing for Strong Towns. Uh, coming up soon uh, about the river itself. Maybe we should start there and we could talk a little bit about how, uh, I don't know, how did that, how did we come to be interested in so many of the same things? I have no idea that's a good
1: question well first of all thank you for having me on your podcast uh, yeah. it's a pleasure to be here and yeah. I and I am a regular listener and subscriber to your podcast as well so and likewise just so. another uh, example of our overlapping interests yeah. that uh, I think you know part yeah. of it is that we're probably both really interested in cities right like uh, we I've lived in st. Louis in the city uh, for over 30 years you're a big fan of cities we've both mm-hmm. traveled and I think probably some of our favorite travel experiences whether in the US or outside the country have been with great cities.
0: Yeah.
1: Um and probably at some point we both had the thought how come our cities back home aren't more like this. Yeah. So, you know, we've we've shared that mutual interest uh, probably for those reasons and our family, you know, yeah. when we grew up, we traveled a lot. We had family vacations every year, so yeah. I think we've always sort of had this curiosity about the, the larger world. And uh, yeah. certainly with Dad, we used to have a lot of discussions and debates about why things were the way they were. And uh, yeah, uh, so that's all part of our DNA at this point.
0: Yeah, I look back with a lot of fondness with all those crazy long car trips that we would do or pack everybody in the car for two weeks and drive clear across the country
1: it's amazing how we could fit five of us into you know basically a sedan yeah and drive from the midwest out to oregon and back for a couple of weeks and not kill each other (laughs) i know i know I was still,
0: I still um, remember as a kid, I was mostly amazed at dad's ability to eat Kentucky fried chicken while driving. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: a feat even I don't attempt. (laughs) Uh, uh, Although I will own up to occasionally I have tried to eat pizza while driving (laughs) (laughs) when I've been in a hurry. But yeah, so I think that's part of our DNA It's for me, like the strong towns connection, I think is really fascinating for me too, because Because of you, you in 2011, I spent a summer in northern Minnesota to get to know that part of the Mississippi better. I was kind of wrapping up my work, uh, learning about the communities of the upper half of the river, and I really didn't know much about the places north of the Twin Cities. Mm -hmm. So I was in a position where I was able to spend much of that summer uh, up uh, in that area, and I based in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, and in uh, Bemidji and uh, and Saint Cloud. But during that trip, you had mentioned that there was this guy in Brainerd <laughs> who was doing some interesting work, and his name was Chuck Marone, uh, and he hadn't become quite as famous as he is now. Uh-huh. Uh, so Chuck uh, met me at the local coffee shop at Coco Moon, mm-hmm. uh, and then we walked around Brainerd a little bit, and he showed me a couple of older parts of, of the city and uh, gave me a little bit of background on his thinking with Strong Towns. Uh, and I have been a follower of Strong Towns ever since because a lot of that just makes so much sense to me. Uh, in fact, I was just listening to an older Strong Towns podcast on the way down to sort of prep, and, you know, my mindset. <laughs> Get in the right the mindset, podcasts, yes. right? <laughs> So, and I, I knew about him because of you. Mm-hmm. You know, you had mentioned that there was this guy doing that work and mm-hmm. uh, Brainerd is on the Mississippi River and I uh, figured why not? I need yeah. to learn more about Brainerd as well. So uh, so we made that connection, and I've been following Strong Towns ever since. And I've, I have found that work uh, very influential in the way I think about cities. And when I think about the problems in a lot of river towns that I see, uh, it's hard not to come back to that Strong Towns critique uh, of uh, development patterns and look at how those have played out in river communities and
0: kind of wish for something different. Yeah. And, you know, I probably should take a moment and, and mention – you know you were doing some of that work cuz you were writing a lot of books uh you've you've written a, a lot of books uh related to the Mississippi you want to talk about what all those are I, I think it's it's vastly different depending on what your interest is
1: yeah um the, the only common theme really is that they all tie back to the Mississippi in one way or another i suppose yeah. but uh i started off writing travel guides so you know i really initially what i wanted to do was i wanted to write books uh for people who were traveling to the region to entice them to stick around longer because I'd heard so many stories of people who like flew into Chicago, rented a car, drove to the Mississippi, looked at it, said they had seen the Mississippi, and then went on. (laughs) Like, no, this is nothing. Um, So I wrote some books that went into a lot of history about each community, probably longer than most people wanted to read, but I did these detailed histories. And then I had long lists of things you can do in each of these communities. So it was a pretty time-consuming process. And I wrote several of those books. I ended up writing one book just for the Headwaters region based Mm -hmm. on that summer. So one book just for that upper part of the river, North of the twin cities. And then a few years ago, I figured it was probably a better business plan to combine all of those into a single book. So I have one travel guide for the upper half of the river from Cairo, Illinois to Northern Minnesota. Uh, but that's not enough. So, um, based on, uh, I had a publisher reach out to me asking if I'd be interested in doing a book on disasters on the Mississippi. (laughs) I went ahead and did that. I think it's a pretty good book. Uh, I have a book coming out next year that'll be a natural history guide for the Mississippi that uh, I think is one of the favorite projects I've done in a long time because I got to go deep Mm. into the ecology uh, of the Mississippi. And uh, I think write a book that really does justice to what makes the Mississippi so special. Um, And hint, it has nothing to do with barges. (laughs) Uh, And then I also write mysteries that are set in places along the river. So
0: yeah. Yes. Something uh, for everyone. The the Frank Dodge uh series. You've you've done 4? Uh I've done 3, three and the, half. Yeah, three, yeah, yeah, the novella. And I'm working on the 4, the fourth novel right now. Right. So our older sister Cindy says you are one novel away from a breakthrough. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well then, this next one's got to be it. <laughs>
1: and it's going to be like murder on the Mississippi, so a little, yeah. you know, Agatha Christie-esque maybe. Yeah.
0: Um If only so, yes. <laughs> yes. My, my psychologist brother, who's turned into a prolific writer. <laughs> you just never know what past life we're going to yeah. take you on. Yeah. But you, I mean, um, for those who don't know you, I mean, you came to this because you lived basically your entire adult life along Mississippi. Yeah. In large, it, starting with going to college.
1: That's right. Uh, when I was 18, I, you know, we had grown up in suburban and small-town communities in the Midwest. And when I was 18, I went to college in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, nothing to do with the river, why I chose La Crosse, but uh, the river really got into my soul, I think, at that point in time, and it never left. And then when I left La Crosse, I moved down to St. Louis, another town on the Mississippi. And it's a very different river experience in St. Louis than it was in La Crosse uh but i've always like that time in lacrosse i think left a really deep impression on me um and there were a lot of years when we would take road trips i would be just along the great river road to get to know, you know to visit places along the river better um so i got hooked early and mm-hmm. uh i tell you, it's one of those things like the more i dig into it you know the more fascinating it gets and i what am I like 10 15 years into this now and, yeah. and it's
0: just as interesting to me now as it was when i started I I remember, I mean, one of the things I remember from when we were kids was just the drive into La Crosse, you know, when you're on Interstate 90 and you're, when we leave Albert Lee and we drive uh, east into La Crosse and then it's all, you know, like farmland and pretty flat. uh, And then you hit this point where you penetrate the bluffs as you head down into the valley where the river is. And it's just, I remember even as a kid, I was like, wow, this is stunning.
1: It's, uh, it's a shock, isn't it? After yeah. hundreds of miles of cornfields, you have this little ribbon of blue and green that opens up far below yeah. you, several hundred feet below as you descend down into the valley. And it's hard to forget that if you've never done that before. And it made that same impression on me the first time I did that. It's like, wow, yeah. this is the Midwest?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that upper part of the river, you know, just in general, all through along um, the Minnesota-Wisconsin border, and especially in a lot of northern Iowa, is really just beautiful. It's, it's I think, if if people haven't been, it's it's amazing. Uh, and I know I mean, there's some great towns along there, but there's also all the the parks and the natural um, scenery that that you've written about a lot.
1: Yeah, and a, a section of that from uh, roughly uh, the Quad Cities up to Wabasha, Minnesota, is part of the Upper Mississippi National Fish and Wildlife Refuge. So that was established in the 1920s. In fact, next year, uh, I think next year is the 100th anniversary of that refuge. Huh. Um, and so a lot of that land is uh, as beautiful as it is because it was set aside as refuge property. You now, there have been, there were some exceptions to the protections, mm-hmm. uh, as there always were with uh, national refuges and forests and such. Uh, but that part of the river uh, doesn't have the levees that, that the lower half has in general. Uh, it's a little less developed uh, for the most part, a little bit wilder than some other parts of the river. But, you know, what I like about that upper half of the river so much is I like the dramatic scenery with the bluffs. Yeah. You, you have this very defined river valley with bluffs that are up to 500 feet tall, limestone-faced sheer cliffs that line the river for yeah. like three to five mile wide valley. And then you mix in the islands and the, you know, the the braided channel of the river. Uh, and I think, you know, in terms of the natural scenery, it's just absolutely gorgeous.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I again It's like, I, I think about places like that and other places that we've talked about before in the middle of the country. And it's like, people really have no idea that this stuff exists and uh, maybe that's fine. You know, maybe if, maybe if they did, they'd come here in numbers that were too big. I don't know, but. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'd have a bigger housing crisis if maybe, they all wanted to come and live here. Right? Maybe. But, yeah.
1: But yeah, no, I, I do think it is a, it is a delicate balance to walk with that, isn't yeah. it? Because on the one hand, I would like more people to understand what makes that. So special. It makes yeah. really big rivers in general special? Um, but I don't want it to become so popular that we have Yosemite level problems with yeah. you know, with it being overrun. The upper Mississippi, uh, the upper Mississippi refuge. I think they claim something like three million visitors a year, mm. which is a lot. But I think that's a lot of local people who go repeatedly to fish. Yeah. So there are times it can feel crowded on parts of the upper river, especially on weekends when all the motor motors are out. Um, but it's really not that hard to find a quiet little space somewhere, even on those busy
0: weekends. Yeah. And what are some of your favorite spots just from like a scenic standpoint, uh, state parks or, or anything along, along the way? I've got a few, I,
1: and it depends kind of on the experience. Um, you're looking for, one of my favorite spots is, uh, the Tremplo National Wildlife Refuge, which is 50 minutes or so North of La Crosse. Uh, And it's, uh, I think I I like it mostly because it's kind of quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, you know, a lot of the river, there are railroad tracks that run very close to the river. There are a lot of campgrounds that basically have railroad tracks <laughs> that run right through them that are next to the river. And it's hard to get away from some of the train and and, and highway noises in, in, in many places. But in the Trempello Refuge, there aren't tracks right next to it. Uh, and it's uh, it's an area mostly of wetlands and then some bottomland forest, a little bit of prairie. You have a mix of ecosystems, so you can see different kinds of plant life. Uh, and mostly, though, it's just like this incredibly peaceful, quiet place. Hmm. And it's hardly ever busy. I've been there on summer weekends when there have only been a couple of other cars there. Hmm. Uh, I think there may be a few times it gets a little busier fall during migration season. I think it gets a little busier when a lot of uh, people will show up to watch all the, the birds and the waterfowl that are flying through. So I love that area for that experience. Um, and then um, Effigy Mounds National Monument is another one of my favorite spots in it for a variety of reasons. One is because it's uh, it's had such importance to human beings for a long time. It's a site of uh, hundreds of uh, of mounds that were built by indigenous people, mostly uh I'm gonna get my time frame wrong on this like a thousand plus years ago. Most of mm-hmm. them are relatively recent uh but uh, they're on top of the bluff for the most part, mm-hmm. so you have to walk up this trail to the top of the bluff and then there's a series of mounds, some of them that are just uh p- small pyramids, some of them are in the shapes of animals like birds and mm-hmm. bears. And then there are three or four overlooks that have incredible views looking down on the river valley from there. So you kind of have this mix of deep history in this area, uh, a feeling of the spiritual importance of of that region to people who lived there before we arrived. And then you have these beautiful forests on top of the bluff and uh, bluff top prairies and these dramatic views looking out over the river.
0: Mm. And then at the opposite end, you've also done canoeing and camping uh, where the Mississippi flows into the Gulf uh, down in Louisiana, which I'm incredibly jealous of. <laughs> those, those always look like in just amazing experiences, but um, it's like almost a completely opposite ecosystem in many ways and, and experience.
1: It is. There are big differences between the upper half of the river and the lower half. I, in some ways, I'm going to you know, greatly overgeneralize and maybe <laughs> irritate a couple people here with this, but I find the upper river the most scenic mm-hmm. because of the bluffs, yeah. essentially, because right. you have this very defined valley and these bluffs that frame it. Um, but the lower half of the river is wilder. Uh, there aren't nearly as many communities. When you get south of Cairo, Illinois especially, there just aren't very many towns right on the river for a variety of reasons, but mainly because the river kept shifting course through that alluvial soil and cutting new paths and abandoning communities that thought they had a, a river port. And then overnight they didn't. Uh, so, uh, the, that part of the river is all levied. Um, but in some places the re- the levees are relatively far apart more so than others. And in between the levees in an area, uh, that's uh, often called the batcher uh, you get uh, a part of the river that's still, uh, let's say, undisturbed. You get barge traffic going through, but the area is pretty wild. So you can put in a canoe in Memphis, for example, and you can paddle for a couple hundred miles and you may never see another person. Wow! Uh, and you can be out on islands. You can be in thick woods. There are islands that have, you know, small bear populations, lots of other wildlife, a lot of birds, especially. Um, so you can really have the kind of wilderness experience that people often spend thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. to travel far away. Mm -hmm. You know, people travel up to Alaska or they go to the Amazon for these great experiences. You can do a lot of that uh, on the Mississippi and depending Mm -hmm. upon how much, you know, how primitive you want to get with your, with your camping, uh, how many comforts you're willing to give up. um, You can have a really interesting wilderness
0: experience on on the lower part of the river. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, how, How incredible was that for you to just canoe and to camp, you know, at at the bayou at the very end of the river? And is that something that, like, anybody can do, pretty much, or is it hard to do?
1: Um, It's not for a beginner. Yeah, and I'll I'll, I'll qualify this by saying I was with a group. You know, we had, um, I think there were nine of us, maybe, in two big canoes. So we were paddling in 29-foot Voyager-style canoes. So we had all of our gear and four or five people in each canoe. And I joined this expedition at New Orleans, so you know it was mm-hmm. a little uh, uh, surreal to be in the French Quarter at a meeting one day, and then the next morning I'm in shorts and uh, I'm stepping into a canoe at Algiers Point, and we're pushing off and paddling through the port of New Orleans in these canoes, mm-hmm. and then that night I'm in a tent. <laughs> like this is the kind of experience you can have along the Mississippi. You can have yeah. the comfort uh, and the joys of wandering around the French Quarter. And a day later, you could be camping on a, a sandbar somewhere, uh, twenty miles south of there. Right. So it, it's possible to do that. Uh, it helps to be in a bigger boat. You know, we did. You know, canoe past a lot of uh, uh, cargo ships, a lot of ocean going cargo ships. There's some barge traffic. There's some fishing boats. So it's a busy stretch of river. And if you're not uh, accustomed to dealing with the wakes of those different boats and canoes then you should probably practice that before you paddle that part of the river. But there are places where you can stop and camp for the night, depending upon uh, the height of the river. As the river comes up, a lot of those patches of sandbar land will disappear and it gets harder to find a place to stop. Um, But it's all pretty accessible. And then once you get to just south of uh, Venice is where the road ends, where the tarmac ends in Venice, uh, Louisiana, and just south of there, there's an area called Head of Passes, where the river splits out into that bird's foot mm-hmm. delta that we've seen so many pictures of. Uh, so from there, you know, there's a lot of National Wildlife Refuge mm-hmm. um, property and some state refuges. Problem is, a lot of that's um, coastal marsh, and there's not really land. So, But there are a few places where you can camp down there, too. Mm-hmm. And once you get past Venice, uh, you need a boat to get back. So if you canoe down to the end of the river, then you're either canoeing all the way back like we did, uh, or you have to make arrangements for somebody to come pick you up to bring you back. Yeah. Yeah. So what's that like? Is the current challenging trying to canoe back? You know, for, for the bigger boats with all of us, it wasn't that bad. Uh, one of the tricks is like, if you stay a little closer to shore, you're, you tend to stay out of the stronger current. And that's what we did for most of the way. But, you know, if it's a little windy, if the river is a little higher, there are all these other factors that can make that a much more difficult trip going back. Mm-hmm. But it took us, you know, I forget exactly how many miles that last day was. We'd camped the night on a barrier island looking out over the Gulf of Mexico, which was amazing. Um, and uh, it was sunset mm-hmm. when we were
0: pulling into Venice Marina. So mm-hmm. it was a long day. Mm-hmm. So uh, without giving too much of it away, I wonder if you could talk, a, give like a preview of what you're going to write about for strong towns, because I know it has a lot to do uh, with this topic, just about the river and river ecology and um, maybe thinking more holistically uh, about the river itself. Why don't, I don't want you to like <laughs> give away the entire, I want people to read the article when it comes out or articles, but I'm curious how you would describe it.
1: Yeah, I think you know fundamentally um what this is is a critique of our approach to making the river navigable for barges. Uh that I will expand a little bit beyond that, but I think there's just a lot of um misunderstandings about what um how important that is to our economy, what we've done to the what we've had to do to the river to make it navigable for barges. And I want to spend a little bit of time just sort of illuminating how that process works. And, uh, I'm not against moving goods on the Mississippi. I just think the system that we've settled on is probably the worst of all worlds is it's a system that has fundamentally altered the ecology of the river. We've built 20 some, 29 locks and dams on the upper part of the river from you know St. Louis up to the twin cities that have had a tremendous detrimental effect on the river's ecology. Um, we've made other alterations to the river, uh, on the lower part, we dredge all the time. Um, so we've had that as one of the core problems is that we're doing severe damage to the river's ability to be a river and support mm-hmm. the life that, uh, is, uh, that it has historically supported. But the other part of it is the people who benefit pay almost nothing of this. Mm-hmm. This whole system is almost entirely funded, uh, by taxpayers out of federal tax dollars. And uh, so, we have, and uh, this is, I, I guess, a part of the punchline, but maybe it'll be enough to get you to you know, folks interested mm-hmm. in reading more about it too. As I see it, what we've done is we've created a publicly subsidized transportation network that competes with private railroads mm-hmm. for the same business. And it's only serving a very small niche of the economy as it is, because you know, the, the Mississippi, you know, river shipping in general is slow. And there are uh, often disruptions in in shipping on rivers, so uh, it's not you know when I order a product from Amazon, you know if you, if I ordered a you know tube of toothpaste or something mm-hmm. off of Amazon, I'd be willing to bet that at no point in that production process and getting to my house did that uh, was a waterway involved in any of that. Mm-hmm. So, river shipping is only good for certain kinds of things. And so it's a very small niche of the economy and it's also deeply embedded with um the commodity crop agriculture that we've settled out in the Midwest, which is problem deeply problematic as well. I'm not going to get into a critique of that. That would be but we you know, can talk about it. Though. We can talk about it, yes. <laughs> so maybe we can do that and get away from the the article itself. But yeah, it's it's hard to separate that because yeah. I feel like in, in some ways those waterways providing artificially cheap transportation um sort of, um, uh, makes it easier for that commodity crop agriculture to survive
0: on the scale that it does. Mm-hmm. And part of that's just because it's so deeply subsidized that yeah. transportation.
1: It's because yeah. it's so cheap to move, but it's artificially cheap. Right. Right.
0: <clears throat> um, and there's also uh, an impact, uh, obviously on that approach on the towns along the river too. So I'm, how would we talk about that? I mean, obviously, these towns grew up because they were they were <clears throat> ports on the river. Uh, that was obvious. the The successful river towns existed because they had access to the river, uh, and they still do. Um, but it's probably very different now than it would have been, say, a hundred years ago. I mean, how, how 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 would a Galena, Illinois, or you know some of the other really great towns up and down the river? How would they be different today versus like a hundred years ago?
1: Well, you know, Galena today is very different. I, a lot of the reason that it had such a thriving steamboat business was because uh, they had lead mines nearby. Uh, so a lot of those steamboats were there to pick up the lead and distribute it throughout the country and the world. And when the lead mining business dried up, uh, then uh, the steamboat traffic went down. And also uh, the lead mining, because they stripped... Um, they deforested the hills in the area. It increased erosion. Mm. Uh, so Galena is on the actually on the Galena River, which is three or four miles upriver from the, where it meets the Mississippi. But it, historically, it was deep enough for steamboats to navigate. Mm. But because the hills had been deforested, um, erosion increased and and filled in much of the channel of the Galena River, which made it impassable for steamboats eventually. Mm-hmm. So boats don't, you know, big boats can't make it up to Galena these days, but it, its economy is really based around tourism. You know, after lead mining, there was a period when it was a farming community, essentially. Uh, but then uh, uh, because this town was was really overbuilt for the population it had by the 1920s and 30s, uh, they didn't have a lot of money. They couldn't afford to go through the redevelopment processes that other communities did. They didn't tear anything down. So by the 1970s, they had these gorgeous buildings on a, curved, you know, main street mm-hmm. that uh, began attracting artists and then tourists. And so tourism is the main industry now. So it, it really independent of the Mississippi. yeah. And that's really the case for a lot of river towns. Like there are, their economies were initially um, tied to the river. Um, even places like in the Quad Cities, their early factories were built right next to the river. They had, they built a lot of farm implements in the Quad Cities. John Deere was just mm-hmm. one of the companies based there. Uh, and those factories were often next to the river so they could, you know, get access to goods and move you know, move some products down, up and down the river. But as railroads became more important, that quickly replaced um, uh, river, river transportation because it was a lot more efficient yeah. than moving things on the river. So those riverfronts kind of became abandoned. I'm still trying to get my head around right now, like how much a local community benefits from um the barge industry, you know, the, the shipping that we do on the Mississippi today is, from what I see, most local communities get little to no benefit from, from that. Because most of this system is designed to get crops to a silo on the river, loaded into a barge, and then ship it to international markets. So there may be a couple of jobs at a silo near, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in, in town, but those jobs would be there anyway if you had rail connections to those silos instead of barges. Yeah. So I'm not really sure that that benefits those communities all that much, you know, and maybe somebody has data that that'll prove me wrong, but they some of the communities still feel like they need those, that access. You know, one of the things I read about in this article is there, there's a port in Hickman, Kentucky, uh, that, uh, I don't know everything that they move through there, but they do move some agricultural products through there, and they have a little bit of industry around there. The port is kind of in a back bay off the river, but they're in a part of the river that silts up regularly. Uh, I was at a public meeting in 2019 where the port representative talked about how they need about $900,000 a year for dredging to keep access to their port open. They can't afford that. They feel like they need this port for their local economy, but... But they can't the port, afford the maintenance. Of right. It. They, they de- can't generate enough money locally to pay that $900,000 a year to keep the port open. Okay. So uh, through some uh, bureaucratic magic, uh, uh, a year or two after that, the Corps of Engineers, the Army Corps of Engineers that manages the river, uh, found a way to cover that expense. And now the Memphis District, which uh, includes Hickman, they spend $7-plus plus million dollars a year to dredge, I think, nine ports to keep them open. Hmm. So these are local communities that have a port, but couldn't generate the money locally to maintain access to the river themselves. And they needed federal
0: help to do that. Yeah. I mean, it seems very, very much uh, not in the strong towns uh, (laughs) sort of mindset that uh, we, that it requires that. So like, when, when did, when did we start building the levees and dams or the lock and dam system on the river? Like, when did that happen? They
1: both have kind of a long history, although um, there have been significant milestones where things change. The first levees were built at New Orleans not long after uh, the first French settlers arrived there. So that goes back to the early 1700s. And those are the ones that still work. Well, uh, they had some problems, those (laughs) first couple of levees weren't very tall. So the river tended to overtop those, but they did build on high ground. The river has a natural levee. The, it's a little counterintuitive maybe, but right next to the river, it tends to be where the highest ground is uh, because as the river comes up, it drops a little sediment, and then you know, as it goes over that, it spills over and, 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 and uh, flows further away from there. So right. over time, that area next to the river tends yeah. to build up, yeah, and that's where the
0: French Quarter is. Right, and so I remember like, when we had Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, like, that was the part of the city that was fine. Right. That was never flooded or anything else. So, and
1: some of the worst parts of the, the worst flooding in the city were areas that were marshes up until yeah. like the 1930s or so, right. until fairly recently. Yeah. So the levee system has been around for a long time, um, and for a long time it was a local responsibility. I think probably the biggest milestone was after the 1927 flood, um, when you know the core was the the federal government was doing some levee work for them. But after the 1927 flood. Congress basically said, "Core, you take over levy management and construction for the lower half of the Mississippi. So all the levies from Carroll, Illinois, down to the Gulf uh, are managed by the federal government hmm. and paid for by the federal government. Mm-hmm. Upper River is different. There's a mix of levee districts and local communities and a few federal levies mixed in there. But uh, uh, for the most part, those are private uh, or local uh, levies. Navigation has this kind of a separate history Uh, for a long time. um, Well, see, there's a lot of this is also tied up with, you know, for a long time, there was a view that this just wasn't the responsibility of the federal government to to do programs like this, particularly levies. But there was some federal interest in trying to make the river more navigable. So there were some programs in the 1800s where they made some modest investments in things like uh, trying to blow a hole through rapids Hmm. uh, or build a canal around rapids. Uh, there were some of those kinds of projects that were funded federally. There was uh, uh, there were navigation funded projects uh, or projects that were funded to to make the river slightly more navigable. Where they built a lot of wing dams uh, uh, to try to force the river into a, a narrower channel where it would go faster and self scour and dig out a deeper channel. But uh, the biggest changes were really with the Depression. Mm-hmm. So after the Civil War, railroads largely replaced river shipping mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. And there were some underhanded tactics the sure. railroads used to speed things up, but this was going to happen anyway. And, uh, so, uh, there had, there were people in the, uh, in the Midwest in particular who were not happy with the railroads. Yeah. Especially 1900, the 19 teens, there was a feeling, especially among agricultural communities. I understand it, that they felt like they were being, uh, that the, the railroads were essentially a monopoly that were charging exorbitant rates for them to ship and it was making them go broke. So they had been lobbying Midwest interests had been lobbying the federal government for a long time to do something to make the upper river more consistently navigable. Hmm. And they insisted that that would open up the Midwestern economy. It wouldn't just help farmers, but all kinds of other businesses in the Midwest were behind this idea, but the federal government wanted nothing to do with this. And then of course the, uh, The moment that changed everything was the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, it became essentially another one of the public works projects to get uh, people working again. Um, But the core, even within the core up until that time, they didn't want to get involved with this. Um, And there were internal core documents that, uh, from that time that suggested they didn't think this was really a very good investment. But once they got the money and Congress authorized it, of course, it became a great project and, mm-hmm. uh, and with all kinds of uh, uh, return on investment to, for this. So that's when they began construction of the lock and dam system. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: Interesting. So I, I don't know enough about like the, the boats and the, the barges themselves to know. So like pre, pre-lock pre and dam system, obviously there were boats that went up and down the river. You get, mentioned the steamboats and uh, and others, there must have been active shipping up and down the river. Um, and it, it, what was, like, the rationale, was it just it would allow for bigger, deeper boats, basically?
1: Yeah, I think it was a, an economy of scale, essentially. Because, <clears throat> you know, during the steamboat era, you know, um, those individual, it was basically all of the boats were privately owned. And you might have an entrepreneur who owned one boat. Uh, who would move goods up and down the river on that one boat, and oftentimes it was cotton, you know of course, a lot of this was tied to the slave economy at the time mm-hmm. um, but uh, and then you know the the wealthier uh, individuals or companies might have three or four boats, uh, but it was all you know they they owned their own boats and they were taking the risks of running them on the river and there were plenty of risks those boats were not very safe, um, and if they got five years out of them, then they made a lot of money off it most of them I think could get. Their money back with, with, in a season or two because it was that lucrative.
0: Mm.
1: But uh, that was, you know, as more people lived in that area, that was probably uh, a system that wasn't very scalable. Mm. So there was only so much you could move on those individual steamboats. And then the railroads essentially took that capacity and then had the capacity to move a lot more mm-hmm. than any of those steamboats did. So and they built tracks along the river in a lot of places. So they directly competed with steamboat business, uh, uh, by doing so. So, uh, the barges, you know, I think it was just like, this was give us another economy of scale, another large scale transportation that you can carry a lot of cargo in a barge. Um, but they require a deeper draft. So mm-hmm. the, the channel, you know, the, the, the way it works right now is Congress authorized a nine foot channel and it's usually deeper than that, but it's a minimum depth of nine feet. And that's what the locks and dams maintain Okay. Uh, or the, the dams maintain. So, and that's deep enough for a barge then. Okay. Um, but the upper part of the river at certain times of year wouldn't be that deep. You know, if it was an especially dry year, Uh, There were dry years, like in the 30s, I think, where people could walk from one side of the river to the other because the water was so low during those times. You can't move a barge in those conditions. Mm -hmm. So the the dams provide a reliable amount of water uh, for most of the year. Now, of course, the upper half of the river freezes still.
0: Yeah, right. Uh,
1: (laughs) So there's still about four months of the year you can't move anything up there because of ice. Yeah, it's cold up there. Yeah.
0: It's cold in Minnesota. What can you say? Right. It gets cold
1: (laughs) up there. Right. But for some
0: reason, you know, somehow the trains still run during those times. Yeah. So uh, is, are there, um, it kind of just makes me wonder, obviously the, that approach to managing rivers was not just unique to us. There are countries all over the world that did that, uh, have done that. Are there places where is there anywhere in the world where somebody has like reconsidered the lock and dam, dam approach and maybe removed some and tried to take more to more naturalistic approach to river management? Well,
1: I think there's, there's a little bit of a movement now understanding the, uh, the damage that we've done to rivers with mm-hmm. this kind of construction. So it's a little complicated I, there are a lot of dams that were also built for power generation yeah. and there were dams that were built uh, to create reservoirs. So mm-hmm. drier parts of the country had access to water. So like in the Dakotas and right. out West, there are lots of those giant dams. Uh, there are several big dams along the Missouri river mm-hmm. that are mostly, I think to pool that water. So you have it available for agriculture and for communities, which you wouldn't, Necessarily have as reliably without the dams, uh, but uh, and there are some places where the dams are coming out on smaller rivers. Yeah, you know, dams have a lifespan. You know, right. they're concrete or they're you know they're natural materials still in some cases. Uh, just some logs piled up and covered with dirt. These have a lifespan and they break down. And at some point, you either have to rebuild it or, in some cases, they've decided it was more economical just to take them down and let those rivers run naturally. Mm-hmm. I think the Klamath River in Oregon maybe is one place where mm-hmm. a couple of dams have come out, um, and they've seen a return of salmon populations mm-hmm. in those rivers. Um, along the Mississippi, there is a growing awareness that we need to restore more wetlands. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very a human-centric uh, uh, need again because mm-hmm. we we understand better now that those wetlands, excuse me, those wetlands provide storage for water. So while they may not provide enough capacity for a giant flood like the 93 flood, they do store water during periods of high water, which reduces the height of the river further downriver there. Um, And because they also store water, they also can take the edge off some of the droughts. Like if the drought doesn't go on for too long, some of that water from the wetlands will seep back into the river channel and keep it from dropping too fast. So they're natural buffers. Uh, plus they filter water and clean it, uh, remarkably well. So there are some efforts to rebuild wetlands along Mm. the river, but there's not really any discussion. Well, there's discussion, discussion in one place of removing (laughs) dams on the Mississippi and that's in the twin cities. Mm. Uh, we may, you know, we overbuilt like we do Mm. always with these programs and Minneapolis wanted to be the head of navigation because prior to that barges couldn't go beyond St. Paul. Mm. So there's a gorge, there was some rapids, there was, and there was waterfalls, um, at Minneapolis. So barges couldn't reliably get to Minneapolis and Minneapolis wanted their own barge terminal. Yeah. So of course we built two more, uh, dams with locks to allow barges to travel from St. Paul to Minneapolis. <laughs> Those were the upper St. Anthony falls lock was shut down. And I want to say 2015, it's been a few years ago now, and it Publicly, at least, the rationale was that it, uh, they were worried about invasive carp getting through the lock and into the pristine waters of northern Minnesota. Okay. Uh, but really, the I think the actual reason was that that dam just was only serving one company. Yeah. There was one scrap metal company that had some barges. That was about the only use they were getting out of that, and it was just hard to justify that economically. Yeah. So they're having a discussion right now in the Twin Cities about the future of those uh, dams between um, roughly St. Paul and, and Minneapolis. And there is a possibility they may decide to to remove those and let the river run more naturally. They're not going to remove the upper St. Anthony log. Yeah. I mean, I think that one is there now to prevent invasive carp. You know, that's its purpose now. But there are a couple of others that might come out. Interesting. And it's a, a
0: beautiful stretch of the river too. The Twin Cities.
1: Absolutely, the only gorge on the Mississippi cuts through Minneapolis, uh, uh, and there's a, a lot of public land. I think it's almost all public land along there. They had the foresight to protect the the spaces adjacent to the river from private development for the most part. So there's a lot of public access.
0: It's it's very different from my hometown, yeah. where it's hard to get to the river. Yeah, hard. It's hard here too. You, you know, in Kansas City, we have two rivers. We have the Missouri River and the kansas river or the kaw river and um um, there's finally a lot of interest in uh, reconnecting to the riverfront but historically it's almost all been industrial uh so it's been very hard to actually get to the river Uh, which is a shame because it's actually quite beautiful Uh, it is and you know that's you you hinted before about
1: holistic river management and uh i'll just kind of give a plug to that real quick so the the problem I, i think that we've fallen into uh as I see, like fundamentally, the problem is probably that most people don't care what happens with the rivers, Yeah. but the people who do care, care a lot. And for the most part, the people who care a lot are the people who are benefiting financially from the current state of affairs. And they have a lot of influence. They have a good uh, PR machine that regularly puts out press releases to make people think shipping on rivers is a lot more important than it really is. Uh, so we have a small group of people that are making decisions about how to manage the, the big rivers, and they're mostly concerned with um, things like flood protection. They're mostly concerned with water, mm-hmm. like keeping enough in there for barges, but not so much that it floods communities that decided to build next to the river. Mm-hmm. And there are not really other voices that have much influence that are in that process. The lower Mississippi is managed by the uh, Mississippi River Commission, which is almost all engineers. There's one person from another federal agency that has a seat who's not an engineer, uh, a water specialist or hydrologist or something, I forget. But for the most part, engineers manage the Mississippi. Um, I think we need like a poet or a painter (laughs) or or somebody with a little more imagination to go in there and remind them that there are other reasons that uh, the rivers exist other than moving barges uh, and other than having communities nearby. Right. Uh, last year I had a project uh, uh, funded by the Mississippi River Network where I got to interview a bunch of people about how they spend time along the river and what the river means to them. And one of the things that really surprised me was uh, yeah, there were only like 10 or 12 people I talked to, but there were two veterans I talked with uh, who both came out of the service with PTSD who talked about how spending time along the river helped calm them. Um, and soothe their anxiety, uh, in ways that being in other places didn't. Uh, I think we underestimate the mental health benefits of being uh, out in nature, being in the natural world, being along rivers, um, standing next to that concrete ditch called the Los Angeles river, you know, <laughs> doesn't have anywhere near the same benefit as, uh, you know, watching the sunrise from a
0: sandbar in the Mississippi river. Yeah. And it's like, we've talked about it before, it kind of relates to, there's a lot of, uh, 20th century um, engineering and technical expertise, not just in engineering, but a lot of fields, a lot of of things that kind of like to go under the cover of science that were actually very narrow expertise areas. And I guess it's not to say that there's no expertise there, but it's often just like everything was was filtered through this one very narrow prism of uh, solving a problem without really considering all the other impacts. Uh, And uh, so we talk about that a lot, obviously, in town planning and, you know, the impact of thinking about transportation uh, as just moving cars. And we didn't really think very much about the impacts that would have on cities and the people that live in cities and just their day-to-day lives and uh, dealing with all that. But it, it, and, and, you know, I think when you talk about this with rivers, it makes me think about the classic case study like the Everglades which was highly engineered, uh, and had created all sorts of problems, was killing off all the species in the Everglades. And so they basically ripped it all out, is my understanding, and went back to a more natural, naturalistic approach to manage the Everglades. And it's been, you know, a much, it's been a world renowned success. Right. And
1: of course that was, it's been a very expensive project, probably over the long haul that'll have enormous benefits for, you know, for Florida. Um, and part of the problem here is that, uh, these are dynamic places, you know, whether it's the Everglades or the Mississippi river, these are complex right. ecological communities. And even though, you know, the Congress uh, authorized a, you know, a small amount of money for, uh, environmental restoration on the Mississippi, they've awarded that money as well to the Corps of engineers and let the engineers try to figure out right. ways to rebuild things that we've destroyed on the river, but they can't recreate there's no way we can recreate the ecological complexity that exists in that natural system
0: yeah
1: uh, and just as a quick simple example you know rivers naturally rise and fall there are variations in uh, in, in their their height throughout the year uh, and there are a lot of um, plant and animal communities that have adapted to depend on those variations there's certain plants that won't be able to regrow unless the water retreats and the ground dries out long enough for their seeds to take root and grow. Well, we don't let that happen anymore because we maintain this artificially high water level for barges. So, you know, a few years, you know, the core has experimented some with what they call drawdowns, mm-hmm. where they let the, they bring the water down just enough to let some of those areas dry out. But the problem is, you know, they can only do it to the point where it doesn't interfere with navigation. Mm-hmm. So they can't do it every year, right? Uh, and it's still it's it's a it's a small way of trying to create a process the river does naturally mm-hmm. um so it you know we it seems to me oh fundamentally what the river needs is less management, not mm-hmm. more. We need to just let it be able to do more of what it does well and
0: get our hands out of it it's It's funny, so it'll be interesting to see how this goes with with writing about it for strong towns because Chuck, who is obviously an engineer, he's gotten uh, in a lot of trouble with his fellow engineers. Uh, by saying things, you know, like engineers shouldn't be designing streets. Uh, it's a recurring theme that he has, you know, through <laughs> it's all that, you know, engi- that, and his point really is that engineers provide one area of expertise. Uh, but there are multiple other areas of expertise and there are just people who have deep knowledge of their place and they should be much more involved with deciding, you know, the the values that go into designing our streets and not just as a technical uh, exercise by looking at a manual. And so maybe there's an analogy there with river management. Right. As well. I don't know. Um,
1: you know, some of my best friends are engineers, so I'd hate <laughs> to you know, alienate all of them. Um, but I can't help but think the river would be a lot better off if there were no engineers involved in making decisions about how to manage the Mississippi. And it was a broader coalition of people who represented a greater variety of ways the river that we engage with the river and what the river means to us. And then we can consult with those engineers when we need their expertise to carry out those priorities. Uh, Putting engineers in charge has created a a situation where almost all of the focus comes down to managing the amount of water in the Mississippi and nothing else. Yeah. And that has been extraordinarily damaging.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I I don't want to go too off on this tangent because then I would, be on a tangent for like two hours talking about (laughs) engineering but uh it's interesting i do want to ask like what we talked about galena earlier but what are some of your favorite uh river towns obviously lacrosse is one lacrosse is an amazing little town and not just because of the giant six-pack but it has a real (laughs) (laughs) has a really cool little downtown
1: yeah, it's. I have such a sentimental attachment to lacrosse because I lived there for six years in college you know, during a critical time of my development into adulthood. Yeah. So it's hard for me to be objective about that. Um, I love lacrosse on mm-hmm. so many levels, and I think they've done really interesting things in the last decade to promote uh, redirect development back into the downtown core and not spread out quite as much. Uh, but it's also just an area where there's so much to do outdoors mm-hmm. and, you know, being the North, you know, people are accustomed to the cold. So they are outdoors all year round, snowshoeing mm-hmm. and skiing and snowmobiling. So it's not just a summertime activity. So I love lacrosse for a variety of reasons. It's a friendly, small town. They're all, you can find anything you want there. Mm-hmm. Craft breweries, there's a distillery, there's good food, whatever, mm-hmm. um, there are smaller places I really enjoy too, like Lacrosse is maybe hundred thousand people for the for the general area. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you've been here. I love Bemidji, yeah, Minnesota. Yeah,
0: it's a great town.
1: Uh, I find right it's a it's a fascinating place from the far north. Uh, it's near the beginning of the Mississippi, but mm-hmm. it's also on a big lake. It's got its own core downtown that has you know enough going on to keep your interest, and then plus you've got access to the the North Woods and a mm-hmm. lot of other things to do. Uh, and it's a, a small university town. So there's some cultural activities going on there too, mm-hmm. if you're looking for art or uh, performances. So I love Bemidji. Mm-hmm. I wish I could say the same for Brainerd. Sorry, Chuck. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, and he probably would, would not argue with me. Brainerd yeah. has become more of a place that serves the larger resort community. And I think has lost its sense of Brainerdness. Yeah. Uh, hopefully they'll rediscover some of that. Um, I like, uh, McGregor, Iowa quite a bit. There's a two little communities, McGregor and Marquette that are old river towns. Hmm. Uh, the past few years have been a little rough for them, uh, with COVID they, you know, there's kind of a tourist based economy. Hmm. Uh, they struggled some with COVID. Um, they took a hit from a tornado a couple years ago or a few years ago that did some damage and they have a giant sand mine nearby that for a while was running a lot of trucks down main street and hmm. was scaring off some of the tourist business. But it's a beautiful little town, great architecture, uh, right on the river and another place where you can um, access all kinds of great parks. Pikes Peak State Park is just you know, adjacent mm-hmm. to it. Um, where else? And on the lower part of the river, yeah. I'll exclude New Orleans because that's mm-hmm, the obvious yeah. choice, but right. you can never go wrong in New Orleans. Right. I, I've been really enjoying getting to know Natchez, Mississippi.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a beautiful little town. It's got uh, a deep and uh, often troubled history. It was really the center of the slave economy in the South. Uh, I'm not. I don't really spend a lot of time going around touring the plantations or mm-hmm. reliving the nostalgia for uh, a, a time in our history that was deeply problematic. Mm-hmm. But as a community, it's on top of a bluff. Uh, it's got beautiful architecture. Uh, they have. They do draw a fair number of visitors. It's got a fun dark side to it also. There was an area called Natchez under the hill hmm. that, uh, at least before the Civil War, was where the brothels and uh, gambling houses were. So it was right next to the river. So if you were coming up on a steamboat, you don't had to walk a few steps. Very that, convenient. Exactly. <laughs> and, of course, the wealthy people lived on top of the bluff mm-hmm. uh, and looked down on literally mm-hmm. uh, all that activity. So I But I find, probably
0: probably snuck down there themselves. Oh, you know it. Of course they did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: they had their uh you know, their footman or whatever right. get them down there uh in the yeah. dark of night. Yeah. So so I think that's a really interesting community as well. Um so yeah, I mean that's probably enough. St. Francisville, Louisiana is a beautiful little town. I'm really just kind of getting to know. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you know, I'm looking forward to spending more time down there. Beautiful live oaks and mm-hmm. Spanish moss hanging from them and old buildings and um, an interesting place in its own right. A good artist, you know, good uh,
0: set of artists who live in that area. Yeah. What about like within an easy drive of St. Louis uh, on in Missouri?
1: Um, well, you know, you can't go wrong with St. Genevieve. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, one of the oldest communities along the Mississippi, depending upon um, which record you choose to believe. It <laughs> goes back to the mid 1700s at least. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's got a lot of you know, remnants of that French colonial architecture that's now protected as part of a national park. St. Genevieve National Historic Park, I think, is the official name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's a great place to walk around. Uh, the, I love visiting the old houses there. Um, it's not as a lot to do there, uh, but uh, it, it is a popular place to spend the night. And uh, there are some b and And then there are some other state parks that aren't too far away. I've been spending more time in Southern Illinois, uh, mm-hmm. around, uh, you know, it's a little further away from the river, but Shawnee National Forest covers a big chunk of Southern Illinois from the Mississippi river to the Ohio river. Uh, and on some parts of that are uh, along an old channel of the Ohio river. That's now the cache. And it's really beautiful. There's still these little, uh, uh patches of Cypress and Tupelo swamp uh, in Southern Illinois, like within hmm. a couple of hours of St. Louis, you can be, uh, uh, paddling around a swamp. Hmm. It's as far north as they range. And you can do it without worrying about alligators because it's too far north for the gators. Right. So there's some beautiful areas down there and, uh, those it's mostly small towns. Some of them have been developing, um, their own attractions. So there's some wineries down there, lots of cabins to rent hmm. and several state parks and uh, a couple of national wildlife refuges. So there's a lot to explore down there and I'm really just Kind of scratched the surface myself so far.
0: What would you say are are there similarities with river towns just among them that maybe distinguish them from uh, some of the towns that are not on one of the great rivers?
1: Yeah, I, I hope this isn't just an invention in my head, but you know, I, I I think there's like river towns. A lot of river towns have a history of like so many people coming and going that I think there's a little bit of a laissez-faire attitude you find mm-hmm. in river towns that you don't find so much in places that develop differently, uh, that are further, you know, let's say, in the heart of the plains. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one thing. But all these river towns also had their you know, dramatic boom and bust cycles, and a lot of them boomed in the late 1800s on the upper part of the river. Mm-hmm. So you have these communities with... Uh, the, these gorgeous buildings that went up in the, uh, in the late 19th century, mostly brick and stone buildings, obviously meant to last with great ornamentation, uh, that are still there, uh, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, but the towns are struggling. Uh, many of them lost population as, uh, the railroads took business away from the river. Many of them, the river was really yeah. their lifeblood. Excuse me. So, uh, as, uh, um, as the river traffic became less then they, they struggled to figure out, uh, what to do, where, how to rebuild their economies. Some of the bigger towns managed to do that and, uh, like Lacrosse, but others never fully recovered from that place like Keokuk, Iowa, uh, really lost population as the river trade di- diminished. And then as highways were built, uh, Keokuk was kind of on the road to nowhere. Hmm. So as people could drive to bigger places to shop, or then, um, uh, they lost a, a fair amount of population, but they still have many of those old buildings that went up in the 19th century. Hmm. They're just not in great shape today. And you mm-hmm. see that in a lot of river towns where you can kind of trace
0: these, uh, economic boom and bust periods. yeah, just waiting to be discovered. So if you're uh, priced out of Brooklyn or you know San Francisco or something, there's amazing um, towns, beautiful places all along the river that you could move to very inexpensively and and create a, a pretty high quality life. I would think you know. So just you know, a note for anybody anybody listening that's looking,
1: <laughs> <laughs> give us a call. Like if yeah. you're looking for a, a place to relocate in the Midwest and you're looking for some ideas of inex- place, in inexpensive but beautiful places to go, yeah. we've got a
0: some options for you yeah there's a lot of these really great uh towns and and even along the missouri river too there's a lot of really cool uh old river towns some of them have become you know tourist towns like herman and uh, weston weston's not on the river anymore it was another one of those that it used to be on the river and then the river moved uh during one of the floods and now (laughs) it's like five miles from the river uh but it's a great little uh it's now it's a great little uh you know, sort of weekend vacation spot for a lot of people, but it's, it's really a charming little town. So there's a, there's a bunch of those uh, along the Missouri river as well. Uh, What do you say to people who say, I think, I know we've had this conversation before, but I want to get you on the record Uh to to people who say, well, when the Missouri and the Mississippi join, the Missouri is actually the bigger river and the south of there, it should be called the Missouri river, not the Mississippi river. You
1: know, I have an entire presentation I put together (laughs) to answer this question. (laughs) Uh, And the short answer of this is um, it depends on which criteria you want to use when you um, are uh, deciding which river gets which name. but. We also I, we also think like there's probably some some grand organizational plan or some organized way that rivers were named, and that's just not the case. Like, yeah. We have the river Mississippi basically because the fur traders, you know, French fur traders learned the name of the river from indigenous people in Wisconsin yeah. and Minnesota. They used that name uh, to describe the river when they wrote back to their contemporaries in France, and it ended up on a couple of maps of early maps. So when Marquette and Joliet came here in 1673 and canoed down the river, they knew it as the Mississippi and they carried that name with them as they traveled south. Interesting. So really it's kind of fundamentally an accident of history that that name carried as far south as it did. And it's really because they also explored the river from the north to the south. If they had managed to find the mouth of the river at the Gulf of Mexico and traveled up. From there, we might know the river by a completely different name. Yeah. So, uh, I I think yeah you know, the arguments over that are fun. Uh, <laughs> the the Missouri River definitely has a bigger watershed and uh, is a, is a longer river than the Upper Mississippi. But there are arguments for the Upper Mississippi as well, carrying yeah. that name further south. Yeah, I think it's just because people like straight
0: lines. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a straighter line on a map that helps. So and so like uh, again a total tangent, but like the French. So the French actually explored all the way up the Mississippi as well as the Missouri then? Uh, not a lot west, if I'm remembering I mean, my they came to right. Kansas, They came to Kansas City. They yeah. were some of the original settlers in Kansas City. And then I think they went as far as probably Leavenworth. Um, but, uh, but on the Mississippi, they went all the way uh, up into Wisconsin and Minnesota.
1: Yeah. So the French really kind of explored the river from north and south. So okay. uh, they came from Quebec. Mm-hmm. From you know, French Canada down for the fur trade into the the North Woods to develop trading relationships with Indigenous people uh, in what's now Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Canada, and rivers were their only real reliable way of getting around and moving goods. So mm-hmm. they they developed those trade relationships, but they also had that presence in New Orleans, mm-hmm. uh, beginning in what seventeen. 17- yeah. Oh, three or 11 or 12 or whatever. I should remember mm-hmm. these numbers, but I'm terrible at trivia when it comes to dates. <laughs> uh, so they also, well, you're, getting,
0: you're getting old.
1: So I am I that to, too. I have to remind you of that. I think of it as an overcrowded brain. It's a problem rather than a memory problem. Uh, it's an <laughs> access issue. So, you know, they explored from the South also. Yeah. And at that point, you know, by the time they had established New Orleans, there were already maps that had Mississippi as the name of the river. And there were a handful of attempts to try to change it to something else. You know, the French tried a couple of other names, but yeah. none of them stuck. Just the Mississippi stuck,
0: right? And uh, again, by way of history, there's there's a couple of just amazing uh, Native American sites uh, along the river. So the Cahokia Mount, is that right? Yeah. Uh, and then there's the one. Uh, what's it, something? Uh, you just had a podcast about it. Um, oh, Poverty Point. Poverty Point. I, I knew it was Point, but yeah, Poverty Point. Just unbelievable, incredible structures, which had been featured in dozens of documentaries, I'm sure. And uh, But right there, essentially adjacent to or very close to the river. Yeah, uh, Poverty Point's a little further
1: away, but uh, it's in the Mississippi uh, uh, Basin. Okay. Uh, but it's a little further. It's not on the main channel of the river, but it's on a tributary. Um, and the Mississippi was probably very important to them, even down there. Like, I think part of the problem here is that uh, indigenous North Americans built with dirt for yeah. the most part. Uh, and they built these, uh, let's say, well-engineered, we'll give a nod to mm-hmm. those engineers here, mm-hmm. uh, structures out of dirt that uh, uh, have held up very well over centuries. So Poverty Point has a collection of mounds that are, I um, over, think, over 3,000 years old. Uh, and it was uh, a community of some kind. There's still We don't really fully understand what happened at this site, but there's a series of semi-elliptical rings that looks like people may have lived there, if not temporarily, you know, uh, at some point of the year they were living there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's perfectly laid out. There are mounds that are around that site, and some of them are aligned with lunar or celestial events. Uh, and that's you know that was for uh, a community or group of people that were considered hunter gatherers that until fairly recently archaeologists mm-hmm. assumed weren't capable of creating structures like this of organizing mm-hmm. and organizing the labor required to build structures like this. And near St. Louis, Cahokia Mounds, that historic site is is even more impressive. It was mm-hmm. a full fledged city, yeah, um, it's enormous. Right. At least ten to fifteen thousand people in the main city and probably as many in uh, outlying communities that were uh, probably supporting the main city. Lots of structures. They built roads, they built mounds, they dug houses, you know, they built these houses that were, at, they excavated some. So they were in set deeper in the ground and they built wood structures around them. Uh, very complicated community, very complex. Um, and I believe at the time it was a bigger city than London, mm-hmm. but because they built mostly from wood and from dirt, mm-hmm. you know, we, it doesn't get the recognition it deserves. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if they'd use stone, it would be as famous as Machu Picchu or right. any of those other sites. Cause it's just as impressive. And you've got one here, not far away from you that, mm-hmm. uh, I think they're just beginning to understand how big and and complex that place was around our Kansas city. Mm-hmm. There's another community that I think was the Spanish called et
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think they're just still doing a lot of initial excavation and exploration on that. That's pretty incredible.
1: Yeah, so because they built with dirt in these mm-hmm. mounds, when farmers moved into the Midwest, mm-hmm. they plowed over a lot right. of these. So some of the, uh, many of the mounds have been lost because they've been you know turned over for agriculture. Uh, some of them were purely ceremonial. They didn't contain anything, but some of them did have uh, burials in them. Some of them had, um, objects in them. So, uh, I think uh, there was, the river was very important in indigenous life in North America. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, one thing I've been trying to get my head around a little bit more here lately too, is I, I I get a little frustrated at times when I, we talk about the Mississippi today. And the first thing people talk about is how important it is for transportation. Mm -hmm. And they, they say something about how it's always been important for transportation. And that's true, you know, For indigenous people, the Mississippi was an important way they they traded and and moved around and hunted. But the river was far more than just uh, yeah. a transportation system; it was life. Mm-hmm. They lived off all the bounties of the rivers, the fish and the plants. They harvested. Yeah, you know, when you didn't need uh, to grow crops, when you had all this great food all around you mm-hmm. so they could live uh, next to the river and live very good lives. And I don't think they had to work all that hard to collect food uh, um, because of what the river provided. But the rivers also had deep spiritual meaning to them because water in general, water, rivers and lakes uh, were in many indigenous theologies were seen as um, the portal to uh, another world. You know, and I won't get into my, you know, grade school understanding of uh, Native American <laughs> cosmology, but mm-hmm. um, rivers were, had deep spiritual meaning. So yeah. it's really reductive, I think, when we talk about the Mississippi's importance as a transportation, uh, for transportation only. It's always been much more
0: than that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a probably a good place for us to stop this time. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll do it again. Uh, so you're uh, going to have to come on my podcast I now. Will. Let me ask the questions. I'd so lo- I'd love to. Uh, and we, we didn't even get into much into agriculture and food and all that, which we'd you know, love to do at some point, just even though it's not like we're farmers and have deep expertise in that, but we have opinions. So
1: absolutely. I certainly have opinions. <clears throat> yeah.
0: All right. So Dean, my podcast is the messy city podcast. And I like to end by asking my guests of a a particular place could be a city, it could be a neighborhood that kind of meets that uh, that idea of a more sort of a bottom-up, organic, messy kind of place that, that you think of or that you enjoy in particular. So what comes to mind for you?
1: Uh, because I'm a regular listener of this podcast, I had a feeling this question was coming, so I had a, <laughs> a chance to think about this. So maybe I'm uh-huh. at an unfair disadvantage uh but, um, uh but the answer i've settled on is a part of st louis uh-huh. uh i really love the soulard neighborhood mm-hmm. which is the oldest uh neighborhood existing neighborhood in st louis just south of downtown uh and i never get tired of just walking around the streets and looking at the odd collection of buildings and the mm-hmm. uh by today's standards the unusual placement of buildings there are full structures that are right on the alley and not on the main street You have uh, these uh, unusual half-flounder buildings that aren't in a lot of other cities with this, you know, uh, 45-degree angle roofs. Uh, And then you have these tenement buildings that are, uh, in some cases, next door to a mansion. Uh, Just a great collection of interesting architecture from different periods of time, Mm -hmm. shoved together uh, in a tight space. And I can only wish for that time machine so I can go back to maybe... 1880 and walk
0: around the streets of that neighborhood <laughs> and see what it was like then. And you used to live in the neighborhood. And I did. we lived there for a few years. Yeah. And has a fantastic public market as well.
1: It does have a big, you know, the Soulard farmers market is one of the, I think maybe the longest uh, continuously operated public market in the country or one of the longest op- continually yeah. operated. Yeah. Um, and they have a big Mardi Gras festival, yeah. which people don't realize, I think we're the third largest Mardi Gras parade. Mm-hmm. Which if you've ever been in St. Louis in February, seems like that's probably not a great idea, but <laughs> we still draw big crowds. It's quite
0: a festival. I've I've been to it. It's shockingly big. Yeah. So. Not a fun
1: time to be a resident of Soulard. Uh, yeah. So we, we just started going away to stay with friends that weekend, but yeah, hey, you know, we all have our, our things. So. That's right. Well,
0: that's a great answer. I love that. So, all right, Dean, I'll let you go because I know you have things to do today and you have uh, family to deal with and you have to get on the road back home. So thank you for doing this.
1: Thank you, Kevin. It was an honor to be part of your podcast. <laughs> Thanks.